0: True Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, Hey, what's your story?
1: I can't believe I'm ninety-two, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says that when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days listening. Listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, "Listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion, which is a, you know, a good listen." The first L is listening, and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning, but listening, and learning, and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other. laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories, and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you.
2: Thanks to Katherine Tucker Windham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of telling stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to our October 2019 True Tales Live show filmed at Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to those watching and listening, and especially to our studio audience. We're so glad you're here. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we very much encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other assistance that we provide to tellers. This is not a competition. We're not going to have any ranking or scoring or judging at all. Our belief is that stories share from the heart, uplift, and inspire us. And that is why we are here doing what we do. Our theme tonight is come hell or high water. I looked it up and from what I could tell, this is a phrase that originated in the early 1900s in the American Midwest um, and it had to do with cattle ranching like driving cattle through the high water or whatever came. I thought that was kind of fun. Nowadays, it is applied to all sorts of situations that challenge us. And tonight we're going to hear about five of those from Emily Spaulding, Paul Doncaster, Beth LaMontagne-Hall, Tom Osberg, and Tina Sharpentier. Our MC Pat Spaulding, will introduce each of these tellers to you. And after the storytelling, there'll be an interview by David Frayner of Beth La Hall. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up here to get us started.
3: Thank you, Amy. Hello, everyone. Up first is Emily Spaulding. No relation to me. <laughs> She now lives in Newcastle, New Hampshire for most of each year, but originally hails from Georgia. Emily wrote a memoir titled Red Clay Girl and is now working on an audio version. In her book, she describes how she wanted to leave the South to change her life and become more sophisticated, to work in New York City, get an education, travel, and to step into new adventures and discoveries, all of which she successfully did, but During the writing process, Emily realized that true sophistication is simply accepting who you are. And that is the discovery that changed her life. Tonight, she'll tell us the story of an adventure she undertook with several friends, all of whom were about to turn 60, and were determined to walk across England from the Atlantic to the North Sea, come hell or high water, which is the title of her story. (laughs) Come on up,
0: Emily. Hello, it's so nice to be here. Well, as Pat had said, thank you, Pat. We were all about to turn 60 and we felt so old. We didn't know what could we do to hold back the hands of time. And Dick's high school class, my husband, was also turning 60, and three of them were engineers. And one of them said, the one with the big bottle glasses, said, you know, I read in Scientific American that if you hiked and walked, you would not get old so fast. And the second engineer, the one with the uh, pocket protector, said, I think what we should do is we should all hike together every year for two weeks. And why don't we hike in Europe, and then when we start getting old and admit it, we will come to the United States and hike here. That seemed like a great idea. And the third one said, well, now I am a frugal New Englander, or any, do you know any frugal New Englanders?" <laughs> And he said, I think instead of hiring a guide, we should just take a map and, you know, follow it ourselves. And we shouldn't have a SAG wagon. You know, that's the, when you get a little tired, you call them up and say, take me to the hotel. We weren't going to have one of those. And he said, and by the way, we're not going to do hotels. We're going to stay at farmhouses and B&Bs. And that's what we did. Well... We started out in England because it's 200 miles across, but there are rights of way when you can walk. And the other thing is, it's called the Wayne Rights Way. And you take, uh, well, I'll tell you that later. But anyway, so we started out hiking. And everything was going just fine because in the rights of way, they've been there for hundreds of years. And everybody respects the right of way, even the farmers, if you go in front of their house or through their favorite cornfield, if that's where the right of way goes, that's fine. But there was one, there's always one, mean farmer who raised sheep. And so he, every year, would put his manure in the <laughs> right of way. And not only that, for people like me who would say, well, I'm just going to slip over here, he put up a fence. He, he figured it out. And I tried to crawl over it, and you couldn't. And so we walked through manure in our boots, and it was smelly and sticky. But like everything else, you get through it. (laughs) Well, we had another experience, and that was, now my grandparents uh, had a farm in Wisconsin, and this one day we saw this bucket turned upside down on a fence post. Now, the buckets that I always knew were carried, you know, and you carried your eggs or your feed or your water, never upside down. So we walked for an hour and we saw another bucket, a lot like the first one, that was turned upside down on a fence post. And we said, that must be something that is particular to the British people. And we walked for another hour and we saw another bucket turned upside down on a fence post. And, you know, I noticed that it had the same red stripe around the top, and the label was torn in the same place. Oh, my God, we had been hiking in circles. (laughs) And that would add two hours to the 10 or 11 hours we were already walking. Well, we were a little glum when we got in there. But the next morning at breakfast, I said, you know... All of us have a college degree, and none of us was smart enough to know that this was the same bucket. (laughs) So we all had a laugh about that. It didn't make us feel better when we were struggling in late at night. Well then, there was another challenge. Now I have vertigo. Everybody else was fine. I can't do high places very well. And we were hiking from one village on a cliff to another village on a cliff that was pretty far away, and there were two choices. You could walk down in the valley like the locals did, which took about two and a half hours, or you could walk across a swinging bridge, which swung this way when you, the wind blew, and went this way when you stepped on it. Well, it was seven to one, and I, said, "Okay, I will hike with you on the suspension bridge. And they all just walked across, talking and telling stories. And my husband waited with me, and he said, "Now look, only at the back of my head, and I'm going to walk across, and you just follow me. So we started along, and that was going just fine, about four or five steps. And then the wind started blowing, and it started swinging. And so I looked down. Never looked down. (laughs) I looked down to see where I was going to fall, and there was a river running in a gorge. And at that moment, my feet got stuck to the bridge. I couldn't move. And I put my hands out to try to hold the rail, but I couldn't even reach it because my arms were too short. And so I stood there. And about that time, my husband got to the end and noticed that I wasn't behind him. And I called him and I said, come back and get me. And he said, well, if you can't Do it by yourself. I'll come back and get you. You can't do it by yourself. Well, now, I'm a person who never likes to say I can't do something. I don't want to be a chicken, and I don't want anyone else to think that I just can't, you know, I can't do it. So I got annoyed, and then my face started getting red, and I was getting angry, and you know what? My feet came unstuck, and I walked right across that bridge to where he was, and when I got there, I was so mad I couldn't even say anything. I think he liked that, actually. (laughs) Well, the next day, after I'd had a chance to cool off a little bit, I said, you know, he did me a favor because I didn't have to explain to all the people that I couldn't do it. And he knew exactly what I would do. And so it was hard for me to do, but I said, thank you. And I started talking to him again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a tradition, particularly in in the hike across England. You pick up a stone at the beginning, and you carry it in your pocket all the way across. Now, knowing me, I took two stones just in case, which was lucky because they only had one at the end. And we all took our stone and threw them in the ocean. It was the uh, North Sea. And we made a wish. And you know, we all made the same wish. It was to keep hiking together every year for two weeks vacation. And you know, we have done that for 20 years. And no one has been brave enough to say, well, let's go back and hike in the United States, but this may be the year. And I would like to share with you who may be convinced to start hiking or you already hiking, I learned one thing that when you feel like you absolutely cannot go on, think about your favorite poem or your favorite story and sing it and move your hands and stomp away and trust me, you will get there. Now, my favorite song is Bill Grogan's Goat. And the last time I needed it, it went like this. Bill Grogan's goat was feeling fine. Ate three red shirts from off the line. Bill took a stick, gave him a whack, and tied him to the railroad track. The whistle blew, the train drew nigh. Bill Grogan's goat was doomed to die. He gave three groans of awful pain, coughed up the shirts, and flagged the train. (laughs) Happy hiking to you. And may you never need to say, come hell or high water.
3: (laughs) Thanks, Emily. So are you saying that um, nobody in the group has yet to admit that they're old enough to start hiking in the States? Not yet. Still going to Europe.
0: All right. This may be the year.
3: Far away. Next up we have Paul Doncaster. He lives in Weymouth Massachusetts, is the father of two truly outstanding young women and has been telling stories since 2016. For the past 12 years Paul has worked as a user experience researcher and designer, which means that he gets to listen to other people's stories and use their words to make their online experiences more efficient and pleasurable. Paul believes that learning to play by the rules is an important aspect of growing up. However, when rules are self-imposed and keep us from seeing what we're really made of, sometimes it's important to break them. Let's hear more in his story, breakaway. Come on up
4: Paul.
5: Like a lot of firstborns, I was a bit of an adult pleaser growing up. I felt more comfortable around them. I felt like I had more in common with them and as a result, their approval meant a lot more to me than the approval of my contemporaries. And that's probably part of the reason why I played youth hockey as long as I did. My father was the star goalie of my home city's high school team in the 50's and later became the head coach of that team uh, for 11 years. And he was also one of the founders of my home city's youth hockey program. So he had me in skates at age four. And because I was the only boy I was designated as the only hope for a family's hockey legacy. I started playing on the traveling teams when I was seven, and hockey in the fall and the winter became just a given part of life, just like going to school. But by the time I was 14, I knew, and I think he knew, that any dreams of a hockey legacy were about to die, because the honest truth was I was not very good. I was small, I was slow, I couldn't skate or shoot very well. I liked the games, but I didn't like the practices. So both physically and psychologically, I didn't really have a future in the game. This final season was my second year playing for Coach Deckard. My first year playing for Coach Deckard was the byproduct of hatred. There was one kid who was the same age as me in my, in my city's youth hockey program who I could not stand, and he was on my team every year since the year I was seven. Now, neither one of us really had a chance of making Coach Deckard's team, but regardless, during the tryouts, I made sure I was opposite him or against him in every skating and shooting drill with the singular focus of just being better than him, of beating him being faster than him, being lasting longer than him. I made this team when I really had no business doing so, and the effort must have made an an impression on Coach Deckard because he spent that entire first year giving me that wonderful compliment that's always reserved for the least talented kid on the team. Whenever he felt like he had to lay into the team for not trying hard enough, he would say, Paul may not have the best skills, but he has more heart and he tries harder than anybody else on this team. If I had a team full of Pauls, we'd win every game we played, which was bull. (laughs) This was competitive youth sports in the 70s. The last thing he wanted was a team full of Pauls. What he wanted was a team full of Bobby Meskels kids who listened to heavy metal and had an early puberty. (laughs) But as an adult pleaser, I was fine with that. If he thought that was my contribution to the success of the team, I was more than happy to play that role. The second year I played for him, which was my last year, turned out to be something pretty special. We got on a roll early. We were in two different leagues. We got on a roll early, racked up some wins, those wins continued into October, then into November, then into December. We were in a couple of invitational tournaments that we won without losing and by the time the new year rolled around we were undefeated in both leagues and on a collision course with Westford, the only other undefeated team in the state. Westford had a kid that we called Gargantua. (laughs) He was Bigger than six feet tall and far and away the leading scorer in the state. So, this game was going to be a big event, with the winner being the favorite heading into the state tournament. February 10th, 1979. I know this because my home city sent a reporter, and I still have the clipping of it. The rink was packed. Coach Deckard had us practice, spent three weeks. We were practiced, primed, and ready. And at the end of the first period of this game, we were losing five to one. Gargantua scored four of their goals. I knew what this meant. I'd lived it countless times before. It meant that I wasn't leaving the bench for the rest of the game. When I was 10 years old, I played in an important game where I got on the ice exactly twice. Once at the very beginning, before the scoring even started and once at the very end, when the outcome was already determined. So I knew in this game that the only way I was going to see any ice time was if the score got so out of hand that it didn't matter who was on the ice or if one of my teammates dropped dead of exhaustion. So I sat on the bench and watched. But the exhaustion never came. And our goalie suddenly turned into a living, breathing rock of Gibraltar. And by the end of the second period, my teammates had come back to tie the score at 5-5. to And now I was positive I wasn't getting anywhere near the ice. The beginning of the third period, one of my teammates committed some unforgivable hockey sin and was sent to the penalty box to reflect on what he'd done. (laughs) coach yelled down to him and said, when the penalty's over, come back to the bench. So a minute and a half later, when penance was complete, he came out of the penalty box, came to the bench, coach opened the door and let him in. But he had forgotten to notify us who was out to go out onto the ice in his place. It was one of those split seconds that lasted a very, very long time. I stood there. He stood there with the door hanging open, with his mouth hanging open, and he hesitated just long enough for me to reflect on every time I'd sat on the bench in important moments. And I said to myself, I have fresh legs. I can contribute to the cause. Screw it, and I took off out onto the ice. He may have called me back. If he did, I didn't hear him because I was gone in chasing anything I could see in a maroon Westford shirt. Even gargantua I was a little like a little yip-yip dog right behind him, just <laughs> nipping at his heels. I was everywhere. And suddenly I found myself right behind Bobby Meskel as he was going in one-on-one against one of their defensemen. Now, I'm behind him, so my job is to look side to side and make sure that nobody's coming in to, to mess around with him. And just when he had to make the decision on whether to shoot or try and get around that defenseman, he lifted up his stick and left the puck for whoever it was he'd sensed was behind him. <laughs> yes. I got it on my stick, and I looked up. And as small as I was, with two big bodies between us, I knew there was no way their goalie knew where the puck was or who had it. So I picked the corner, upper left. And because I didn't have a good shot, I reared back, and I let loose with the hardest shot I could muster. And I watched in slow motion as the puck went past Bobby Meskel, past their defenseman, over the goalie's glove and into the net, six to five. <laughs> and as Mike Ruzioni would do exactly one year later for Team USA, when he broke a tie in the third period in a pretty important game, my arms and legs were everywhere. <laughs> and I turned around and Billy Pappas tackled me and suddenly I was at the bottom of an ever increasingly heavy pile of bodies And once once they started coming away, I crawled out and I I skated over to the boards, over the glass. And I saw all the Somerville parents all jumping up and down and hugging each other and yelling and screaming. And I started banging on the glass saying, who's going to win this game? And I went back to the bench and nine minutes and 30 seconds of regulation time later, the buzzer went off. Somerville was still undefeated and Westford went home in shame. (laughs) <laughs> and the locker room was a madhouse. A team full of 13 and 14 year olds slapping each other and throwing things at each other and laughing. And Coach Deckard went to every kid with a pat on the back and an boy" and an I knew you could do it. Every kid except me. He never said a word. And for the rest of that season in which we lost only one game all year The state championship. The only time he ever said anything to me was if I asked him a direct question. I'll be honest, that messed with my head, given the whole adult pleaser thing. The whole permanent record thing was going through my head. I knew I was moving on, as I said. I quit hockey and moved on to other interests, but that episode stayed with me for a while for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it showed me that sometimes people see, th- see challenges to their real or imagined authority as threats, where there really weren't any. And if in this situation, if that was his reaction, that really said a lot more about him than it did about me. But more importantly, it made me look at how I'd been selling myself short for so long. At 14, I got my first inkling that one of the best things I could do for myself was to challenge the assumptions I had about my own limitations. Sometimes that means breaking out of your comfort zone. Sometimes it means breaking unwritten rules you've set for yourself or crossing some arbitrary lines you've made for yourself. But what it means is I learned I had the ability to be the hero. I could be the star of the show in anything I tried, as long as I believed in my own abilities, was ready when the opportunities presented themselves, and when necessary, just be willing to say, screw it, and take the jump. Thanks for listening.
3: Hey, I love a happy ending. Quite the sports story and uh, psychological more than that. Thanks, Paul. Up next, we have Beth Lamontaine Hall. She is the host of the storytelling series Long Story Short, held quarterly at 3S Art Space just down the road from here. And after leaving Miami in 1999, she moved to Portsmouth and has been here making her living writing one way or another ever since. In tonight's story, we'll meet Beth as a new-to-the-job reporter for the Portsmouth Herald who is usually sent to cover boring stories. So when a story came across her desk that was unlike any other she'd ever covered, she jumped at the chance. Little did she know that this particular story would be one of the biggest mistakes of her life. It's titled, Burying the Lead. Come on up, Beth. All right, thank you.
6: Perfect, thanks. the Yeah. Okay, so like in my introduction, when you start out as a reporter, the stories that they give you in the beginning are always the most boring, nobody wants to cover them, and the shifts you always get are the worst shifts, and that includes working on Sunday. Nothing happens on Sunday. You're sitting around, you have a paper to fill, and you are you get to the point where you're like, if somebody would just give me a car crash and a fire, I'd be good today. Um, so you're always on the lookout for something that's unusual. Um, Sometimes uh, the things that get sent your way are what I like to call um, of questionable news value. Uh, Like, one time I was uh, asked to cover a dog's birthday party, Uh, I said no. But you're always on the lookout for a good story. And so one uh, week, the sports editor Mike comes up to me and he says, Beth, I have a great story for you that you can cover on Sunday, which whenever I hear I've got a great story for you, I have a lot of skepticism because it always means it's not a good story. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was intrigued, so I said, all right, hit me. What do you, what do you got? And so he said, we just got this invitation uh, from this very odd state rep in uh, Hampton uh, called Jane and uh, the invitation is to come celebrate with her her funeral she's not dead yet uh, but she's throwing a funeral for herself and if anyone's gonna throw a funeral for herself it's Jane so I said all right fine I'll go what else do I have to do so I get to the hall and uh, there's about a 100 people there. There's black balloons and a buffet. And, uh, you know, I, I walk in, I finally, before I even get a chance to get my bearings, this very old and very short woman with a band aid on her nose comes right over to me. This is Jane. So we're chit chatting, we introduce ourselves, and finally I say to her, you know, let's do a little interview. Um, So where did the idea of throwing a funeral for yourself come from? I thought that was a good opener. Uh, She said well there are some people in this town who feel I've been around long enough. Uh (laughs) So okay Uh, she told me she was uh, raising money for her cremation Uh, but uh, she had no plans on going anywhere anytime soon and she was gonna try to stick around as long as she could And uh, then she points to the Band-Aid on her nose and said, you know what this is? Nose cancer. Do you know how I got that? And I'm like, no, how'd you get that? They say I got it because I like to stick my nose where it doesn't belong. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, you know, we, we chatted a little bit. I finished the interview. I went around the room. I talked with... Her friends and her family, because she was a state rep, she was very politically connected, so there were all the local political dignitaries there. And I would say things to them like, have you ever been to an event like this before? Or, um, Jane seems like a pretty brave lady, doesn't she? Because you're trying to be delicate. It's a woman who just told me that she has cancer and she's throwing a funeral for herself. So they would reply usually with something like, oh, that's Jane. Love her, her, hate her. She does her own thing. Uh, so I left, and I was feeling pretty good. I had some nice quotes, and I had that nice interview with Jane. And uh, as I'm leaving, the photographer who was covering the event comes up to me, and she was like, that was weird. And I said, well, yeah, it was a little weird, but it's probably gonna make a good story so I got back and I typed it up and I was feeling you know I sent it off to the copy editors and I was feeling really good I went home went to bed got up the next day still feeling pretty good Uh, and then I opened my email and the first message said Jane may be old but she is not dying so then I opened the next message and it said Jane doesn't have nose cancer. There's no such thing as nose cancer, dummy. So then I pause and I think, is it possible that a woman not only lied about having cancer, but threw a funeral for herself on top of it? And as I'm digesting this remote possibility, my editor comes storming into the room. And he says, uh, can I see that invitation? So I get it. And he reads it. And he says, um, where on here does it say that Jane is dying? And I'm like, well, she did say that she had cancer. And I was at her funeral. Uh, <laughs> But did she tell you that she's dying? Well, no, I just assumed. Well, that's the problem, you assumed. So he huffs off into his office and, you know, slams the door and I look in the window and he's like on the phone like, so I'm like, okay, I need to put on the investigative journalist hat and figure out what happened. So after talking to some people, I found out that the event was indeed a joke and that it was uh, a fundraiser, not for her funeral expenses, as she had told me, but for her campaign. And uh, apparently there was so- something about the <coughs> funeral thing was an inside joke about her opponent. Uh, And I was not let in on the inside of the inside joke. So, later that day, my editor calls me in. And he was like, yeah, 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 Jane was joking. And uh, yeah, do I think that she's an a-hole? Yeah, I do. Uh, But there is a lesson to be learned here. And that lesson is, If you hear that an old woman is dying, you ask that old woman if she's really dying. (laughs) Don't assume anything from now on. And, by the way, this is your last mistake here. If you mess up again, you know what happens. So I went out and I went back to work and uh, I kept working there for a while and then I went on to some other news agencies and I was a reporter for almost 10 years. And uh, I've written about beer, I've written about you know, uh, political, national political campaigns and every story that I've turned in, I ask myself two things before I hit send and that is, is everything in the story true and is everything what it seems Jane Kelly died at the age of 84 in 2010 and uh, the newspaper did a really nice tribute to her because she was kind of a local character and she served as town clerk for many years uh, she was a state rep uh, she was a die-hard Democrat and uh, so much so that the Firefighters Union made her an honorary member. Um, Her tribute in the paper noted that she had an unconventional sense of humor uh, and that she liked to play pranks on people, uh, something I kind of wish that I had known before. Um, And it also uh, mentioned uh, towards the end of the story the mistake that I had made covering her, uh, and so, you know, honestly, for a really long time, I hated this lady. <laughs> I mean, what she thought was a funny prank to play on people almost got me fired, and not only that, it humiliated me in front of all of my coworkers and in an extremely public way. And all i was trying to do was write a nice story about a crazy lady um but you know i looked at that article and i saw that it was this small article in a small paper that fewer and fewer people read these days and um it was a a small mention at the very bottom of the story and uh you know something that I thought was going to hang over me forever. Uh, You know, it resulted in little more than, like, a a mention in, like, some small-town politician's life story. And, you know, it made me a little cynical. It definitely made me more skeptical. But I'm still here and Jane is not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, jeez, Beth, that was so unfair. (laughs) Next up, we have Tom Ostberg. He grew up in New Jersey, but always dreamed of climbing around the Great White Mountains right here in New Hampshire. So years ago, he and his wife moved to lower New Hampshire to um, raise their five kids on dreams and stories of never taking the same trail twice. Tom canoes, camps every chance he could get, and has hiked the Appalachian Trail. Although he is a software developer, his real love is the study of the art of getting lost. I like that. <laughs> he used to entertain his kids with these stories, but after they grew up, he started telling his tales uh, to others. Now, he tells stories on stages all over New England and records them on his website, TomTallTales.com. But his favorite audience is right here at True Tales Live. Tonight, he'll tell us a story titled The Chase. Run on up, Tom. <laughs>
7: Thank you so i found myself carrying an 18 foot heavy canoe up a grassy hill that was part of an earthen dam in northern maine wilderness and me and my wife colleen were there going on a trip it was our 35th wedding anniversary almost to the day and And I thought back that when we were planning this, we couldn't remember what our anniversary celebration was the year before, or the year before that. But I knew it had to be special this time. And then before I married her, I I chased her around for probably four years. Um, I was always kind of a long-haired hippie type. Hard to imagine now, but. And, and she was uh, an energetic, spontaneous, kind of Irish curly-headed. And I really loved her. And the spontaneous, that's probably why we have five kids, two dogs, and a cat. But I, she asked, so what should we do that's special? And I'm kind of outdoorsy, so I thought, maybe she's talking about camping. So I always wanted to go back to the Allagash. And she said, well, yeah, okay, we'll be alone for 10 days, and it'll be special. So as we carried across our our tent and our our sleeping bag and, and the packs of clothing over the earthen dam, I was remembering back to the first time I went. I was 10 years old. My dad had just become assistant scoutmaster. And that's why I could go, because I was underage. My dad smoked a pipe. He was a great trout fisherman. He could cook over the open fire. He could, he could set up a tent. He could solve probably any wilderness problem. And as we carried the camp kitchen and the lanterns up over the hill, and I was remembering back the, the troop had also hired a river guide. And the river guide would tell these stories around the campfire. You know, we would, we would see the mist on the water and dream about Indians that would paddle this and see the stars in the sky. And he would tell us about the loggers in that main area. They dammed up all the lakes so the water was higher than the natural flow. Instead of flowing south, it would flow north, And all those lakes would flow north towards the Canadian border, down to the St. John River. And they dragged the logs across into the lakes and then run them down the Allagash to the mills, way up near the Canada. And he told us these wonderful stories. And and we had paddled hard to get across those lakes because we wanted to get into the real stuff. And so as we were packing our canoe and we were putting the stuff back in and At the Chase Rapids, we pushed off at the base of the dam and started down. And I was still thinking about those those wonderful days I'd had, you know, sitting in the middle of my dad's canoe and fishing with worms, and and looking for turtles and frogs along the edges, and watching the deer in the in the in the fields, and 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 then we had to paddle. Me and Colin had to paddle hard because we were too close to the shore. and I, I didn't remember the water quite being this fast. And, and then there was a, a couple rocks we had to dodge around. And, and I didn't remember the waves being this high. And, and then there was a log. And, and I didn't remember being this scared. And then Colleen was yelling, right or left, right or left. And I looked and there was this huge rock. We were coming straight towards it. There was water coming from both sides. And I just needed a moment to think. And then we were upside down. I was clawing towards the surface of the the overturned canoe. And I could feel my legs getting hit by the rocks. And when I finally broached the surface and looked around, all our bags and gear were going down the left-hand side of the rock. And I was going down the right-hand side, and you could hear the canoe grinding and smashing, and I could feel them on my legs. And and we zipped right by Colleen, hanging on the big boulder, crying in the middle of the river. And I went down and down another fall and then around the corner I got into an eddy tied off the flooded canoe and, and I, I, I worked my way back up the side of the river afraid for what I'd find and there she was on the far side of the river she must have gotten washed off the rock and she was on the far side of the river crawling her way up the side of the bank she wanted nothing to do with the river she wouldn't look back at the frothing mass. And, and I had to call across and remind her that 90 miles of black, wet Maine forest was a bad death sentence. <laughs> so she, crying and banging and getting hurt, she, she limped her way down through the shallow edge of the river till she got to the eddy where I had the canoe. And, and I helped her out and and I hugged her, and and something changed in us at that moment. The day seemed brighter. We had survived. It seemed warmer, and we, we repacked the canoe, and we continued on down the river, and we saw a moose with its calf in the shallows, and we drifted by, and, and we saw a loon with its black and white speckled back push a baby chick up on its back. And then when we saw an eagle skirt across the water right next to us, we looked into its golden eyes. We held our breaths. That night, around our own campfire, we held each other close. And I traced the smile on our face. I knew we had changed inside. And we had an anniversary memory we'd never forget. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Boy, that must have been some special hug, Tom. (laughs) You were quickly forgiven. All right, Colleen. Tina Charpentier lives in Dover, New Hampshire and works at Dover High School. After growing up in Kittery Point, Maine, in 1982, she joined the New Hampshire Air National Guard Communication Unit at Pease in Portsmouth. Tina spent a total of 21 years in the Air Force, traveling to where she was sent to do what needed to be done until she returned to the Seacoast area to start telling stories about her adventures, where she's gone, who she's met, and all the interesting snafus she's run into along the way. Tina has a unique style of drawing her audience into her stories. Tonight, she'll begin with a bit of a Halloween tone as she takes us to a time many years ago in a place not so far away where she heard things that go bump in the night. (laughs) Come on up, Tina.
4: So, you ever get that feeling that someone's watching you when you're sleeping? Like to the point where it wakes you up, so you wake up? Well, that's what happened to me one night. I mean, it was in the wee dark hours of the morning. And I lived alone in Kittery at the time. So I was pretty creeped out by this feeling, right? But by the dim light from the street and everything, I could see it was just my two cats stretching Boogie, sitting on the edge of the bed staring at me. (laughs) Staring at me, I'm like, "What?" And then, then I heard the noise. So they looked at the door. They looked at me. They looked at the door. They looked at me. They said, "See? You need to go check that." <laughs> now I was scared. I mean, I lived alone, and my bedroom was upstairs, and I don't own a gun or anything. So I got up. I I grabbed the baseball bat I kept next to my bed, and I creeped downstairs. Right. And I paused in the living room because I had to listen real hard because my breathing was so loud and my heart beating in my ears and everything, and I had to adjust to the light. And there was nothing, then I heard the noise again. There was more noise, a lot of noise, but it was in the basement. So I went around through the kitchen and I slowly opened the cellar door. And if this was a movie, this is where you'd cue that spooky music, right? And you'd also say, You're not going to go down there, really. But I did, just like in the movie. I went downstairs, and I flipped on the light, and I froze. There were 10 eyes looking at me. There were 10 raccoons down there in my basement staring at me, and they're blinking because I just blinded them with this new light. (laughs) Now, I used to be an electrician, and I'm in the habit of saving things and organizing things, and I got screws and nuts and bolts, and nails and stuff in different jars and parts and material and I had also built a shelf unit one time that I built it for cassette tapes right but I didn't need this anymore but it had really cool little compartments so I had that leaning on my bench next to a full-size window in my basement and it was perfect for all my jars of organized stuff right but I, I was going to bolt that up someday, but you know how that goes. Right? It was working just fine. But, anyways, the window there is full size because of the way my house was built into the hill. And that's the window they opened with their little fingers and hands and stuff and came in. So now that I've surprised them, it's the window they all want to go out. And they're all trying to go out. Well, you know, they all can't fit out there at the same time. It's like a Keystone Cop scene. They're all trying to get out the window. And, of course, they can't. So now three of them are going up my shelf unit. I'm like, oh, man, it's still like slow motion to me. I'm going, no, no, stop, I'll leave. And I turned around and went back up the stairs, and it was too late, right? I heard the whole thing crash, my shelf unit crash, all the jars and nuts and bolts and washers and parts and everything smashing all over the floor between my bench and my furnace. (laughs) Well, I slammed the door and leaned against it to catch my breath. I mean, let's face it, I just got up. Really. (laughs) And I was looking like that, and I realized, you know what? I had cut one of those access doors in that door so the cats could go down and use the cat box. Like, oh, crap. So I got a box and a couple boxes of junk, and I put them in front of that, and I put a kitchen chair in front of that so the raccoons don't come up in the house. (sighs) But now I'm thinking, you know what? The cats are going to need the litter box. (laughs) So I moved my whole barricade out of the way and everything, and I quickly ran downstairs and grabbed it. it just on the landing and brought it back up and closed the door, put my whole barricade back in there and set the chair there, and I sat down in it this time because I was kind of pooped out. And it was only 5 a.m. So I called work because I worked at a 24-hour operation, network operations center, three shifts, right? So third shift guys were there. And uh, I'm for a shift, so I, I, one of the guys, Scott, answers the phone, and I said, you know what, I have a trouble for you. Maybe you can help me with it. How do you guys recommend I get some raccoons out of my house? And of course, they were no help. They were fully laughing on the other end of the phone. <laughs> I said, well, whatever. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I, I, I might be a little late for work. <laughs> so... Um, I took the litter box at that point up to the cats. I mean, they're up in my bedroom locked in there, right? Or actually, they're not. They're just up in my bedroom. So I go in. They're sitting on the edge of the bed, though, waiting for a full report. (laughs) He said, see? See? I said, look, yeah, I'm working on it. And I put the box down and close the door. And I go back downstairs and try to figure out, what am I going to do? So I probably ought to go see what the situation really is now, right? It was awfully quiet. So I slowly opened the door, moved my whole barricade again, and opened the door and went down, and it was so quiet. But the place was trashed, right? I mean, I had put a trash bag down there recently, and it's as if it had been put through a shredder. And there was glass and nails and nuts and bolts and screws all over the place. I didn't see any raccoons, though. And this was all happening at a particularly bad time in my life. I had just gone through a Really lousy breakup of a long-term relationship. I was down in the dumps and exhausted. And uh, we just had some flooding rains right prior to that. So I had put all my stuff up off the floor on top of stuff, on top of stuff, on top. I, and my, my place was in total disarray even before this incident. It was a mess. But there were a lot of places for raccoons to hide, too. So, I mean, no matter where I looked, I don't know where they are, and there was no movement. So I rubbed my eyes, you know, thinking... Maybe this will look different when I open them again. Or maybe I'm having a nightmare and I'll just wake up from it. But it's not the case. When I opened, the place was a disaster. But then I saw three tails over my bench. They were hanging down. You know where the cement of your foundation meets the house That still there? They had crammed themselves up in there with their three tails. Were hanging down clear as day. So I grabbed a pole and I poked at one of them. But it didn't move, it just sit there and it did blink like it's saying, don't move, she won't know we're here, don't move. So I poked at another one and he does the same thing, he's poking at me now. They were obviously not going to move. So I was at a total loss of what to do. I went back upstairs, I closed the door again, rebarricaded the hole and all that stuff, and decided to go to work. I took a shower and went to work. I mean, what else could I do? Third shift was happy to see me because they can't leave until somebody replaces them, and that's me. The rest of the first shift kind of staggers in after that, literally and figuratively. Anyways, uh, they stuck around a while this particular day, though, because they wanted an update on the raccoon saga in Kittery. Well, um, I announced to the first shift crew that i got to take an early lunch because 11 o'clock is raccoon checkout time at my house in Kittery, so i got to go check them out. And I, on my way over, I thought, I hope they're gone, right? They're nocturnal. I mean, they want to be gone as much as I want them gone, I'm hoping. So I moved my old barricade situation. I went back down the cellar, and I don't see anything. But then again, there's a lot of hiding places. But it was really quiet. No more tails. So I went ahead and closed the door, and I wedged a piece of wood in it this time, so they couldn't open that one. And... uh, Thinking, what how can I make sure they're gone, right? So I put down a bowl of dried cat food, thinking if maybe they're there, they'll be hungry and come out and eat it, and I'll be able to tell. Then I went back and barricaded the hole in the door again. I went back to work. And that night when I came home, no cat food had moved. So I was pretty confident they're gone, hoping they're gone. So I went upstairs to the cats, right? I opened the door and they're sitting on the edge of the bed, boog stretch, waiting for me like, oh. I said it's all clear and they're like, yeah. Let us be the judge of that, right? <laughs> and you know how they crawl on their belly a little bit. They came out of the bedroom like that and they did the, they gave the whole house a once over, right? Before they determined maybe it's safe. <laughs> I still kept the uh the door blocked though cuz there was so much glass and stuff. It was a disaster down there. Really, I was pretty much bummed out. But then less than a week later, I mean, they're indoor cats. They got fleas.
0: <laughs>
4: they got so infested with fleas, it was horrible. The whole house got infested. I got fleas. They were everywhere. I, 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 thanks a lot, raccoons, right? So I tried to give them flea baths. You ever try to give a cat a flea bath? <laughs> Boogie. Got so stiff, it's almost as if he couldn't breathe. He was like a rock. He was, uh, oh, cut it out. I'm not trying to hurt you, right? And then stretch. He screamed and howled, howled, like they could hear him in Portsmouth. I thought, I'm going to get picked up for animal abuse if I'm not careful. And I tried that twice. I gave him two two baths, you know. If we finally went to the vet. Let's face it, I couldn't deal with this infestation on my own. And... and uh, The whole event was sort of a representation of my life at the time. I mean, it's as if I... (laughs) It's like I woke up one day and I was exhausted and my whole life had tipped over and was a total mess and everything was broken. (laughs) So I was kind of forced to reevaluate what was important and kind of sort through the debris and get rid of what wasn't, you know, and, and get through that. It was as if the universe had given me the situation to try to, like... As a distraction or something. But seriously, universe, fleas! <laughs> I don't think we needed that. <laughs> but I did put locks on the door, on the windows, right? And I put that little quarter-inch hardware cloth on the outside as added protection because their little fingers. <laughs> but you know what? One morning, I saw wet raccoon, a whole mess of wet raccoon footprints come across my driveway. They came back looking again to see if they could get in. But they couldn't, I won this time. My hardware cloth held fast. But I do picture them waddling away down the sidewalk, right, mumbling to each other. Shouldn't have moved your tail. She wouldn't have known we were there. I'm telling you. Let's go to the neighbor's house, right? Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you so much to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our fabulous audience here at the station. Give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. Coming up next, we are going to hear an interview of Beth Lamontaine Hall. But first, let me give you some, some other updates. Our next show is on Tuesday, November 26th, with the theme of The Last Straw. It's also our last show, uh, our, our last regular show of 2019. Uh, That's where we are, right? Yep. Um, we have room for a few more tellers in that show, last I heard, and for all of our 2020 shows. So, if you are interested in being a teller, email us at True Tales Live, NH, the number one at gmail.com, and we will talk to you about how to do that. As I said, this is the last regular, sh- I'm sorry, next, next time will be the last regular show for 2019, no um, t- December show except we are going to be having a special live holiday program here at the, s- at the station on December 19th and you're all invited and more information will be available about that on our website and also on the November 26th episode. If you would like to tell a story for Two Tales Live, we really would love it if you came to one of our workshops. We have them monthly, most months. They're held here at PPM-TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the first Tuesday of most months, 7.30 to 9 p.m. They're free and open to all, and the next one is November 5. Whether you are completely new and just want to come and say, I don't know if I can do this, can I try it? Or you have told a bunch of stories, but you want a fresh set you know, of folks to check it out and give you some feedback, we would love to have you. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And any time as video on demand. You can go to our website, which is truetaleslivenh.org. Um, to access all of those options. There's like really easy buttons. You push listen, watch, things like that. It's easy now. Let's thank some of those who make the show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frayner, Chad Cordner, and Sam Adams. Thanks for all the help. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm signing off to our next show. Remember, next up we have David Frayner speaking with Beth LaMontagne Hall. And uh, thanks for watching.